as a person of color and an entrepreneur, one of the things that I try very hard to do is number one, to surround myself with people who think differently than I do so that I have the benefit of understanding what their thinking is over a period of time of building a relationship with them. I have an opportunity to gain a different perspective to broaden my horizons. I also encourage people to spend time with with people who are where they want to go. That's the voice of H. Beecher Hicks, also known as Henry Beecher Hicks, president and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music. Hicks has a rich professional background in audit and finance, mergers and acquisitions, and corporate strategy. And with over 30 years of experience in the business world, he utilizes his knowledge today to fulfill his personal mission, to get something done that matters. I'm Bryn Plummer, Vice President of Equity, Inclusion, and Community at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, and your host of the podcast, Twin Day, Rethinking Entrepreneurship. Twin Day is Kiswahili for Let's Go. It's our rally cry here at the EC. It represents the vibrant passion and strategy of Nashville's entrepreneurs who continuously strive to grow their businesses. It's also the name of the EC's program dedicated to leveling the playing field for entrepreneurs of color. This show is a production of the EC, and it's all about engaging in open and honest conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. Every entrepreneur's journey is different. Each story is full of twists and turns, trials and triumphs. So today, Hicks joins me to discuss the early years of his professional career and business and how a decision to buy Grayline, a premium sightseeing tour bus and public transportation company, unknowingly led him to Tennessee, where he now manages the National Museum of African American Music. We will also dive into the many lessons Hicks has learned from maneuvering through the world of entrepreneurship as an African American man. Before we dive into today's conversation, we would like to extend a special thank you to the generous support of the David and Rebecca Clements family for making the podcast, Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship, possible. Hey there, my name is H. Beecher Hicks. I'm the president and CEO of the National Museum of African American Music. Henry thrilled to have you here in the studio and Glad to be here and grateful to have your time and to get so much of your day because you are a very busy man and a man who's in a lot of rooms. <laughs> we don't take it lightly that you spent your time with us. Thank yeah, you. No, my pleasure. Yeah. I'm going to start from the beginning. I'd love to know how you grew up. Like, what did your parents do? What was your household like? What were some of the sounds in your household? Tell us about that. And then yeah. you were in D.C. Yeah, so I, I, did. I grew up in D.C. Uh, my dad is a, is a Baptist minister, and uh, we actually moved around a lot before finally landing in D.C. And my mom was an elementary educator, uh, although she was, uh, uh, had, the, I guess, the luxury of, of, of keeping up with us more, more often than she went to work so outside of the home. So she was, she was at the home quite a bit. And I've got a, a younger brother who is a couple years younger than I am, and I have a sister who's, I don't know, 15 years younger than I am. So the sounds uh, vary depending upon <laughs> sort of the ages of the kids. Because those are different generations. Oh, I yeah, feel like the music you listen to is different. Yeah. Clothes were different. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very different generations. But uh, yeah, I mean, so it was, it was really cool. I mean, I remember kind of the first album that I bought was a Jackson 5 album, mm. uh, probably in about 1977 or so when I remember that. and. I uh, remember, you know, watching Soul Train and all that kind of stuff. And then I remember in the house listening to like Earth, Wind & Fire. I loved that and the Commodores. And 
that kind of stuff. We had a big living room that had a a sunroom off of it. So like a lot of light would come into the room and, and in the fall or the spring, you could open the windows and doors and just kind of the fresh air coming in and turn the music up. And, and man, I mean, we'd just be, uh, you know, having a great time listening to all kinds of music. And my mom would listen to Nancy Wilson and, mm. and Barry White and that kind of stuff. And I'd love to hear her singing around the house and having a good time. And then of course, you know, Plenty of gospel music. I was going to say, I'm like, I'm hearing a lot of secular music. I'm so yeah. I'm shocked and impressed that your dad <laughs> was so loose with it. Yeah, no, I mean, he was, he was, you know, he was very, very cool in that way. I mean, and, and so like he loved all kinds of music from, you know, spirituals to hymns to uh, modern gospel music. And so, you know, so he was, he was very diverse in what he listened to as well. And, and so I think he saw God in all of it. Wow, that's a beautiful way to put it. Cause yeah. like, there's some singers you listen to and you're like, oh my God, God put that voice on earth so we could hear God through this person's Absolutely. vocals. Yeah. 100%. Right. So you went to Morehouse undergrad. I what did. was that experience like? I feel, I imagine going to a place like that in the 70s, 80s was completely like another world in a lot of yeah. ways. No, it was, it was super cool. And I was there really kind of during the time that the Cosby show and a different world were being taped. And so there was really kind of in that moment, kind of a period of, of you know, what I might consider black excellence in terms of really being being pushed to the forefront through those families and those television shows that were representative. And so it was really empowering to go to a school where, you know, from the first moment I stepped on campus, my name started with Mr. So mm. it was really great to have professors and, and leaders of the school communicate a sense of responsibility and capability just through how they identified and, and called you by your name. And so, uh, you know, being Mr. Hicks, uh, all of a sudden meant something in terms of, you know, how seriously I needed to take the work that I was doing while mm -hmm. I was there. Uh, that is not to say that I was necessarily the greatest student, <laughs> but I did at least take those lessons away that there was nothing that I couldn't do if I set my mind to it. And, and so it was great to be there with a, a group of, of young men who were becoming, you know, sort of full grown men and really kind of growing into everything from medicine to business to sports mm -hmm. and, and in so many ways to, to be there with, with so many people who, you know, I, I grew to like and enjoy and over a period of time come to admire through their achievements professionally and in their personal lives. And that's both at Morehouse and at Spelman, which of course is mm -hmm. across the street. And I uh, was fortunate enough to meet my wife there. And, and, uh, I think that's the ideal Spellhouse story, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, and so met her there and, and was able to kind of follow her example mm. <laughs> in so many ways, as I was mentioning earlier today. Yes. And then when you were there, you said that you started to think about your, I mean, just the level of reflection you have on what led you to your steps after undergrad to yeah. your ultimately what your career ended up being was, I think a lot of people aren't thinking about what are my weaknesses I need to hone and sharpen before I go to the next step. So you went to get your MBA at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. What was that experience like? I'm, I'm curious what it was like for you there. It's similar to Morehouse. What was, imagine yeah. a very different experience being at a, a PWI. Yeah, um, it, for sure. It, it was. And before I did that, I went to work for Monsanto Company in sales. And I did that for about two years. And then I went to University of North Carolina. And it was very different. And it was less about the distinction between an HBCU and a PWI and more about the seriousness with which I took the work. Mm. 
So I was fortunate to be able to get a fellowship to go to graduate school and pay for the full ride. But that did not cover living expenses and, and sort of the, the opportunity cost associated with taking two years away from working. Mm-hmm. And so I really went into graduate school uh, with my eyes and sort of brain set on doing as well as I could. And I think it was very different than the attitude that I took into undergraduate school where it was sort of, you know, listen, learn, have some fun, get decent grades and get out. Whereas when I went to graduate school, it was learn everything you can, like, you know, sort of, you know, really thrive, succeed, sort of learn these lessons. You are here to go to school. And so Mm -hmm. focus on going to school. Uh, You're not here for play. You're not here to socialize. You are here to get this education. And so that is really what I what I focused on while I was there. And I'm fortunate to have great classmates, minorities and non-minorities classmates. And I will say that, I mean, I, I did have to go through a process after leaving uh, an HBCU. I had to go through a process in graduate school of, frankly, learning to trust people who were not African-Americans from a professional perspective. And in this instance, my profession was being a student. Mm. And graduate school really kind of forces that discipline because you've got more work that you, than you can do in the course of a week. And the only way that you get it all done and turned in is to hand parts of it over to your classmates and trust that they will do work at least as good as you're going to do because you're Mm. all going to put your name on that paper at the end of the day and turn it in, whether you touched it or not. Mm. So I really had to trust others to do that, and they had to trust me. And that really kind of resulted in some some lifelong friendships and uh, and really kind of, you know, kind of a, a better way, frankly, to go into you know, living and working and being a professional in America. (laughs) So coming out of that experience was a much better, much better for me in that regard. And so you went from business school to private equity. Is that right? Or was there something Uh, in between there? So yeah, I went to actually to into consulting. So I went to work for a firm called Coopers and Libran, which Mm -hmm. is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. Mm -hmm. And at the time they had an M&A practice. And so even though it was an accounting firm, they actually were advising people on how to buy and sell companies and Mm -hmm. raise capital. Mm -hmm. And I went to work there and I, you know, I'll never forget. I mean, I really talked my way into that job. I mean, it was, I happened, they asked me all kinds of finance and accounting questions. And the night before the interviews, I happened to be reading and studying those very questions they were asking me in hopes that, you know, I would be able to kind of essentially fake my way through enough skill in accounting to be able to get the job. And I did. But then that was really kind of where the education started. I mean, it was a great place to go and to be, you know, I'll never forget, we probably had been there for about two or three weeks and there was a partner in the audit practice who was finishing her MBA and uh, she was having a difficult time. I think it was in an accounting class of all things. And I went and they sent me down to coach her and to help her do accounting. And I was kind of saying that, you know, okay, now this is an audit partner in an accounting firm. And I get, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, you kind of, it was it accounting. It must have been, but whatever it was, it was, or maybe it was corporate finance, mm. but it, it was, you know, like I didn't know this stuff really well. <laughs> like it didn't feel like, yeah, I didn't sure you want me. Yeah. To you sure you want me to, just... but like, Hey, like we just hired you cause you know this stuff. So go teach her. <laughs> and so I, I did. And uh, so she and I have stayed friends and, and um, I remember, you know, being sent to, uh, build a financial model for a radio station that was part of the Christian Broadcasting Network down in Virginia. And I'd never built a financial model before, but, you know, I sat down with Lotus 123 and I figured it out and I did it. And 
Then I got asked to do the same thing for a satellite company that built satellites that is a part of what eventually became uh, Sirius XM. And I built the first financial model for launching those satellites. And so, you know, but again, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just spent enough time at it uh, when nobody was watching that I, that I eventually got it right. And so, so it was great, great training ground to go there. And then I did go into investment banking. I went mm -hmm. to work at Bank of America, which at the time was Nations Bank in Charlotte. I worked for the chairman of the bank, and then I worked in one of their private equity groups, and I worked in their M&A advisory group. I left there and went to work for the White House for a year, did something called a White House Fellowship, which is, which is a great training program for understanding the, the uh, executive branch of government and how to bring those resources back into your community. Uh, so something I really encourage people to look at uh, when they're kind of at the right point in their career. I uh, went back to the bank and worked in private equity, doing a lot of more uh, community-oriented private equity, so focused on black and brown communities, women-owned communities, smaller businesses, and trying to get them some capital. Uh, did that for a few years before leaving the bank, and then went on to a management consulting firm where I did interim management work for early-stage private equity companies. Really, a lot of that was actually sales work, so I was proving out their pipeline. You know, they had done a Series A or a Series B round of financing. They were soon to come up for another round of financing, and the investors wanted to know, was this concept really viable? So we would go in and do work with their sales teams to see and understand what their customers were really saying about the product. So I did that for a few years, and then I moved to Atlanta, back to Atlanta, and went to work. I did some interim management work on my own, and then finally joined a private equity firm, which was doing leverage buyouts focused on creating minority-owned companies by buying middle market companies, companies $25 to $100 million in revenue. And by the structure of the deal, they were creating companies that would be controlled by minority-owned, minority entrepreneurs. And I went in and ran sales, so I was kind of an operating partner for them, and ran sales for their portfolio of companies in Alabama, Ohio, and Illinois. So it was a great sort of exposure to both operating a company as well as uh, financing a company. Mm. Uh, so did all that for about six or seven years and then finally said, stop. And I <laughs> uh, went into my basement and spent about a year and a half trying to find a company to buy. And that's what brought me to Tennessee was I, with a partner, bought the Gray Line, Gray Line of Tennessee bus company in 2009. When you were working in the, the middle market space, creating minority-owned businesses, what were some of the were there any common denominators between the businesses that you were finding, like whether it's sector, maybe some like common mistakes, opportunities you were finding? And then also what was the, to the extent that you were making these enormous companies that were minority owned, what kind of lessons were you learning? What were you thinking? What was kind of the meta process for you yeah. when you were going through that? You know, I, I guess I'd say, I mean, sort of two things. One is that the opportunity for growing or building or creating a business is often bigger than the entrepreneur thinks. So, and that was one of the things that I saw pretty often was that, you know, and, and, and really I saw a lot of this when I was with Bank of America, the, the, the entrepreneur just wanted to do this next one little thing. And from my seat at the bank, I'm kind of saying, but your opportunity is 10 times that big. And they, number one, didn't see it and certainly didn't know how to go pursue it. 
And so that was really what I was trying to do was to help them see and get the resources to be able to go pursue more of that opportunity. And then, and then the second thing is, is similar in a way. So one is not seeing the opportunity because you're so far down in the weeds that you can't, you can't see kind of how big your opportunity is, but also then having the capital to really go do it. So, you know, one of the lessons I certainly learned through so many of my experiences has to do with that. I mean, you've got to have the resources, you've got to have the capital. And if you undercapitalize yourself, it, it makes it much, much more difficult to get through the tough times. Yes. Yeah. You just have less things at your disposal. Yeah. You know, less tools, less runway at your disposal. That's right. That's right. So you move to Tennessee to buy Grayline. Yeah. Give me like the give me the top three reasons why it was Grayline. You know, I'm sure you were vetting hundreds of potential deals at this point. Yeah. Why Grayline? Why Nashville? What made it attractive? So attractive it was worth moving for and ultimately making the buy. Well, uh, Grayline because it was close enough to Atlanta that I could get home for dinner because it was an asset intensive business, which would let me borrow enough money that I could get most of the deal done that way instead of it being sort of heavy on equity. It was heavier on debt. And then third was because there was a certain diversity in the revenue of the business that gave us a sense that the business could continue to thrive even in periodic downturn, which was inescapable. So the business had about 40% of its business, which was over-the-road motor coach, 40%, which was tourism, which was very local, and then another 20%, which was, you know, sort of package sales of tourism-related kinds of things and other kinds of things. So we thought that the mix of business kind of might make it, in some instances, counter-cyclical. Mm. And, you know, that works except for when there's a pandemic or when there's a flood or something like that. And it, every, everything shuts down, which, of course, we experienced in that, in that <laughs> deal. So, you know, so much for great planning. Flood, but, tornado. Yeah, all everything. that. Yeah. yeah. So then you just, you know, park everything. And, mm. you know, so but those those were the reasons. Sure. That second point about it being a deal where you could. It was asset intensive. Can you tell me? Yeah. So it was debt based. I imagine it was a small business administration loan. But tell me what kind of loan? No, I mean, we we did a traditional commercial loan, mm-hmm. and you know the the business was about I don't know twenty five million dollars in revenue, and mm-hmm. the assets were worth twenty million dollars or something mm-hmm. like that. So we had fixed assets that the bank could get comfortable with in terms of loaning us, you know, enough money that we could get the rest between, you know, ourselves and our investors and do a little bit of seller financing and, you know, and we could get the deal done. Beautiful. Okay. I asked that question because I do think in general, there are so many options for people in the capital stack and it's not always visible. I also, for our listeners too, we want this to be a tool so people can understand all the different ways that people make deals happen. So sure, love having that kind of deep insight. Yeah. Into, also the fixed hard assets. I think a lot of our folks are not necessarily thinking about what are the fixed hard assets that I can borrow against. So that's yeah. really, really helpful. I mean, you know, but that was also in some ways, it was also a lesson in, the, mm. in that that was there. However, you know, candidly, a mistake that we made was we did not over equitize the company and we should have. Because when we hit those moments, the flood and the tornado, et cetera, all of a sudden we were under pressure because we were probably over levered. Mm. And so it left us with fewer options in terms of solving those problems. Sure. So when you say under equitized, do you mean you undervalued what you, the assets you had? What does that mean? 
No, I mean, I, I'm, I think, I'm an equity yeah, outsider, so I'm yeah, going to ask so the I, most basic kindergarten I, questions. <laughs> I think that, you know, we, we, we bought that company sort of as a one-off. We did not have a fund, a private equity fund. We did kind of, you know, what's called an unfunded sponsor model. And so we brought the equity that we needed to bring to the deal. So that might be 20% of the purchase price, right? But maybe we should have brought 40%. Mm and had more equity and less debt so that if you have a flood, you can still meet your debt-related obligations or the bank is not as worried about it. And they can say, you know, look, you know, we'll, we'll restructure or we'll forbear yeah. what's going on because we're not as worried about it. Whereas if you have kind of, you know, sort of gotten that, you know, call it 80% or, or mm -hmm. even 60% leverage, then the bank all of a sudden they're really concerned because they're concerned about the value of the assets that they have bar have lent against, as opposed to if they're you know if they're feeling really secure in the assets they're gonna say okay well look you know this this flood will be resolved here in a month or two things will get back to normal so no worries. Got it. Okay, that's really helpful and illustrative yeah. for me. Yes, my brain is is expanding as we're having this conversation. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> Every single conversation I have with someone who's been deep in the world of private equity, M&A, buying, I'm, I'm literally writing down my notes in my little notebook to remember <laughs> these things. So that purchase was in 2009. Yep. And then you sold in 2012. Did, yep. you, did you sell to a private equity? Did you sell to? Yeah, we did sell to another, actually a local private equity firm and just kind of, you know, got out and we did okay. We didn't do amazing, <laughs> but we did okay and, and uh, just kind of moved on. You know, if I had had this kind of thing to do again, it's certainly easier said than done. If I had to do it again, I would definitely raise a fund and have, you know, money for 10 deals, not just money for one deal. Because something's going to go wrong. Something's, mm -hmm. you know, some deal's going to go horribly wrong. Some deal's going to go a little bit wrong. And some deal's going to be a home run. And so you need the portfolio effect in order to be able to, to kind of, you know, really make that work. Now, you know, it's a different story, I think, if you buy or build a business with the intent to operate it. And this is kind of your life's work and you're really passionate about the the field that you're in. And I really think that's really important, by mm -hmm. the way, is that you, know, you really, it's it's not just a financial transaction. It is something that you've got to really enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to be interested in it mm -hmm. from not just a financial perspective, but also from the perspective of the field that you're working in, because you've got to do it every day. Uh, unless you are just an investor where you can put the money in and kind of go walk away, do whatever you do and just kind of, you know, wait for the money to come back to you. But if you're going to do it as an operator and so you got to enjoy it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because it's, it's so it consumes every bit of your yeah. life and you're yeah. having so many different conversations about it. And if it's something that you wake up to and it's a drudgery, your yeah. whole life is a drudgery. Yeah. Yes, which and, might be a word I made up. I'm not sure if I made no, that. No, I think I, I think that's totally a word. And you know, and I, I mean, which is why I mean, the museum sort of came along. I mean, sort of at an interesting time where my stress level had just gone down. I was, but I was also tired, and it was sort of you know, I needed something else to go do, and I didn't want to do exactly the same thing. I didn't want to repeat what I had just completed. And so, as I mentioned, the board of the museum was looking for a burst of energy to come and try to push this project over the goal line. And I was like, look, you know, I'm here, you know, I've, I've, I've got passion for what we're doing. I think it's key. I think it's important. You know, I'm in. Yes. You know, I candidly thought it would be easier. I thought it would be fast. I thought, you know, I thought it was a lot of things that would sort of make it look, you know, this is not that big a deal. We'll just, 
you know, look, I've, I've done hard things. So, you know, sure. this one, you know, won't be that big a deal. It is easily the hardest, most difficult <laughs> thing I've ever done in my whole entire life. Why do you think you've, you've stayed with it? Well, you know, we had, uh, so a couple of reasons. One is I think there are certain things that just have to get done. This was one of them was just kind of like, look, I mean, and it just continued to make sense to me and we continued to make progress. And so if I think if I had ever at any point in time felt as though we were not making progress, then, you know, maybe I would have stepped away, but it always, it was never as much progress or as fast as I wanted it to be, but we were always making progress. And so, you know, at a certain point and things like you kind of say, look, you know, I, I actually asked myself the question from time to time, like, okay, if you leave, first of all, where are you going to go? And then second of all, what are you going to tell people you've been doing for the last few years? <laughs> right. Because it's not done. So you've been wasting time. You've been goofing off. You've been, you know, what have you been doing? Well, like, I've been what do you trying have to show for this. What do you yes. have to show for this sure. effort? And so that was really important was to have something to show for the effort we also had a donor who I say that, you know, he and I kind of had an unspoken deal and that unspoken deal was I keep showing up and he keep writing checks when needed. Mm. I didn't want to let him down. I didn't want to let the overall, the board of directors down. I often said to the board that my view was that I was, cause I was board chair before I became CEO. So my view of this was that I was getting something done for the board. The board owned the project and it wasn't happening. So I was willing to kind of shoulder the burden of getting it done for that group of community leaders who had committed to get this done. So I didn't want to let the board down. I didn't want to let that particular donor down. And I needed something to show for it. And miraculously, over time of kind of getting deeper and deeper into it, it became more and more of a personal passion for mm. me beyond just kind of the Nashville needs this, I began to understand that it was important to the philanthropic community, even though they didn't understand it was important to them. It was important to our city from a civic perspective, even though there were some who didn't see that. Uh, it was important to the music industry, although locally some people didn't see it, but around the country, artists and industry execs saw that it was important. And they would say that it was important, even if they wouldn't write me checks or give me artifacts, they would still say, this is important, and if you can get it done, we will support it. So there were places along the way where I saw almost a, a hurt that the museum could help to heal. Mm. And so being of service and being and making a contribution in, to something that would ultimately make our society a better place was as much of a driving factor and actually more than a driving factor for me than how much money I would make in capital gains. Because, I mean, in this case, that's not going to happen. But that was more important at that point in my life. It was like, look, let's get something done that matters. And when I look back over my career, in fact, I mean, that's what I was seeking all along, was getting something, even in buying Grayline, I was trying to get something done that matters that matters in terms of, in that instance, creating wealth for my family and creating an example for my sons of how to build a business and create a career. I was trying to get something done that matters. And so, you know, Grayline was maybe at a, a point in time example of that for my family, but the museum, I think, is a lasting example of that. That's really beautifully put. And just for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the museum, 
we are discussing the National Museum of African American Music, which is here in Nashville. So walk us through the creation of the museum and yeah. ultimately what the museum is today now that sure. it is here open yeah. in the in the city well i mean i think first of all it is very insightful that that it has been a different job about every 18 to 24 months i mean that's that's very true i mean it has required different resources required different skills from me and from others on the team it, the the role changes as we have have moved through and you know as as board chair my my view of the work was really to begin to get the city on board with what we were doing and that was probably that was probably a step out of order so then when i became ceo while i was trying to do sort of many of these things at once i mean the first job was to define who we were and what we were trying to achieve and define it in ways that people could grab onto and understand so what does it mean to be the National Museum of African American Music? What story are we telling? What role does education play in that? What role does uh, entertainment play in that? How does the work of preservation, how seriously do we intend to take that? Is this a commercial venture or is it an academic institution or is it some combination of the two? We really needed to define that. So that really was the first set of work. And then the second set of work was to get the government sector sort of fully invested and, you know, from the city to the state. The third scope of work was really to work through a relationship with the developer who was building Fifth and Broadway overall. So lots of education around real estate and what that means and, and the politics associated with real estate and doing a deal of that size and not just the size. I mean, oftentimes I didn't feel like I was the spokesperson for the 50,000 square foot museum, but I felt as though I was a spokesperson for the entire Fifth and Broadway project, the retail piece, the the office tower piece, the, the residential piece, because the museum was such a pivotal linchpin in getting the overall project approved and completed that I really needed to be partnered with the developer in terms of moving the thing along and getting the entire project approved and done would be the green light for essentially getting the museum done. So I had to learn how to do that. Lots of community engagement and work around doing that, sometimes because I wanted to do it and sometimes because I was forced to do it. But in either event, you know, that was a part of the work that needed to be done. Then there was certainly work around getting the individual and uh, corporate and foundation communities behind it from a fundraising standpoint, how to get folks to send you $100 from time to time, how to get folks to commit $25,000 over five years, how to get somebody to give you a million dollars, how to get somebody to give you $5 million, and what does that take, and how does the work done to move those things along. Lots of relationship building and communication and conversation and listening around you know, what, what people need to feel in terms of the story that ultimately connects them to the project and to the work. Uh, there was an awful lot of curatorial and, and museum itself work to be done. So lots of work with exhibit designers and technology designers, uh, with scholars around the story that we're telling in the museum and how that story can best be represented with artifacts as well as with technology. Lots of that type of work to be done. You know, and, and so now, you know, we've, I've got an operating job to do, you know, so there's certainly... Now, you know, I tell people all the time, I feel like I'm the, the, the dog that caught the bus. 
So spent eight years talking about what's going to happen. And now that it's happened, you know, we've got an expanded team that needs to be managed and led. And so focusing on culture uh, inside the organization and organizational structure and and trying to do things to keep employees happy in a COVID environment and how to make sure people feel informed about what's going on in their jobs, helping to create career paths, making sure that compensation is fair and timely and and that sort of thing uh, is there, not to mention sort of dealing with operations. I mean, we've, we've got, you know, a significant investment in HVAC equipment that all needs to be, you know, operating at, at the right temperature and at the right humidity to make sure that we keep the museum going. And that is, you know, not an inconsequential and an insignificant thing to, to spend time on, you know, and then all, all the other things, guess what, that were your previous jobs, they stay, they yeah. don't go anywhere. <laughs> they stay, you may just do less of them. Mm. But sort of operating the museum now is a real thing. I mean, how do we balance the need to generate revenue with the need to tell academically sound stories? And those things don't always go hand in hand. And so we've got to make sure that we're staying as more focused on academic excellence and what we're presenting in the museum than we are on generating revenue, but it's the revenue that we generate that enables us to do that academic excellence. And so sort of striking that balance is a big part of it as well. So all of those things at various points in time have been a part of my job. And as I said, I mean, you you don't do them all with the same amount of investment of time, sort of every 18 months, it certainly changes, but they're all a part of it. And so that's been also a part of the enjoyment of what I've doing. So you mentioned, you know, this is, has been the longest time I've ever had a single job. And I think because it has changed every 18 months, that's also been a part of it because it's a new challenge every time. So now we've got a 56,000 square foot museum. It's at the corner of Fifth and Broadway in downtown Nashville, which is kind of Maine and Maine and Nashville. You can't ask for a better location in the state. So it's pretty exciting to be there. The museum is, I like to say, it's not your granddaddy's museum, so it is artifact-rich and technology-heavy. So if you're a, you know, if you're a, a kid that wants to you know, play with your Nintendo Switch, or if you are you know, an older school person that wants to see that album or that outfit that your favorite artist wore, they're both there uh, in the museum. And we really think that that allows for really excited to see multi-generational interaction when I walk through the museum and watch what fo- what's going on and what folks are doing, that's really a cool part of it. It really is as much a history museum as it is a music museum. So the, the museum story is not focused on labels, genre, or artist. It really is focused on the arc of American history and the music that highlights particular points in time during that history and the, the music that comes out and the, and the artists then that are, were kind of the, at the top of their game in terms of telling the story at various points in time. And so it really makes for a different experience where no matter who you are, no matter your walk of life, no matter your race, you go into that museum and you see and experience something that is a part of who you are. Hmm. Let's think and, and kind of translate and take your experiences and think about the broader world of entrepreneurship. So one of the things that we've talked about a lot is is capital. And so part of why we wanted to start the podcast was to bring attention to the issue of wealth gap, credit gap, banking gap, all those issues that impact ultimately the the field of successful founders of color. 
What do you see from your vantage point? You've seen a lot of deals. You've seen a lot of different entrepreneurs. You've coached entrepreneurs. What are some of the the ways that you've seen race, color, class impact people's entrepreneurial experiences? Wow. You know, I, I think entrepreneurs fundamentally try to solve problems. And, you know, and so I think that that's where there's a difference. And so culturally, I think that the problems that people of color are trying to solve can often be different than the set of problems that someone else is trying to solve. I think that sort of a group of folks or an individual who is more economically advantaged sees a problem in an issue that is more nuanced than the average person of color who is on average, again, going to be less financially advantaged. And so the problem that they're trying to solve is more fundamental. And so as a result, you know, I think that there's oftentimes then there's, there's frankly, there's often less in the way of upside in the opportunities that a person of color as an entrepreneur may pursue because that problem is pretty fundamental. And someone someone who is not a person of color who's trying to solve a problem, they're trying to solve something that's a nuance. So there's a greater margin, mm. there's greater opportunity for growth and sort of creating a market where a person of color is really just kind of focused in on things that are basic uh, or more basic sort of on a relative scale. And so I've seen that over and over and over again. Mm. You know, that doesn't mean that there aren't still really big opportunities out there. But then, and then I think that's another piece of it. I remember early in my career working for a CEO of a large company. I remember that the takeaway for me from that experience was that perspective is everything. And so, you know, if you are the CEO of HCA, your perspective on traffic on West End Avenue is very different than if you are the janitor who's cleaning the building. Mm hmm. You know, you see it as I'm going to wait 30 minutes and I'll go later and I'll take the back streets and I'll put the top down in my convertible and this will be a leisurely ride home. That person who's cleaning the building is saying, I have to leave at this time to catch the bus and it's still going to take me an hour to get where I need to go. Same experience or same thing that they're looking at, but the perspective on it is very different. And so I think that oftentimes trying to as a as a person of color and an entrepreneur, one of the things that I try very hard to do is number one, to surround myself with people who think differently than I do, so that I have the benefit of understanding what their thinking is over a period of time of building a relationship with them. I have an opportunity to gain a different perspective to broaden my horizons. I also encourage people to spend time with with people who are where they want to go. Because once again, that allows them to take advantage of that person's perspective and to grow into having that perspective on their own. And then I even, you know, sort of encourage myself and others to try to, even if they don't know that person, try to take that other person, if there's somebody that they look to as a role model or someone that they would aspire their company to become or aspire to be themselves you know, sort of not to make poor financial decisions and try to fake it until you make it, but to try to imagine that they have achieved that same thing, not necessarily for the purpose of material gain or things of that nature, but what does that mean in terms of the decisions that I have to make in order to get there, the way that I have to look at the world in order to get there, and how would that person approach this problem versus how I'm approaching the problem? 
And sometimes those those opportunities or those views can be very different. Mm-hmm. And if you can adopt this person's approach to our problem, then a problem that you think is huge might be something that is small for them. And I'll give I'll give you an example that I experienced just this past week. Mm-hmm. We just talked about the fact that the museum cost about sixty million dollars, and it took eight years or so to finish raising the money. Well, I had lunch last week with a gentleman who is retired from his corporate executive career and was having a conversation about how he is now lending some of his time and resources to raising money in the nonprofit sector. And so in this case, he's raising money for a hospital in the city where he lives and used to work. And so he said, yesterday, I pick up the phone and I called a guy and I got $25 million commitment to the hospital. And then I made another call and I got a $30 million commitment to the hospital. So I felt pretty good about my sales goals for the day. So he raised $55 million for that hospital in less than a day. And it took eight or more years to raise $60 million for this museum. So both not-for-profits, both fundraising activities, but he raised as much money as I raised in eight years, he raised in one afternoon. Mm. He saw the world very differently. He had very different relationships. He had very different experience. He had very different Rolodex. So all of those things made a difference. He had a very different type of project. He was in a very different city. He's of a different race. He's of a different age. All of these things are factors in terms of how you get done what you're trying to get done. But in this instance, he was able to do that. So how do I take that and adopt it for the next phase of whatever the museum is going to do? How do I learn from that? How do, I, how do I listen and learn and sort of figure out how to do that? Mm-hmm. So that whatever we do as a museum or whatever another venture that I might be involved in might do, how do I make it a little bit easier to get it done? So I just have, I just want to ask one more question. Yeah. So one of the things we also are trying to glean from all the people that we'll interview on the podcast is what is their legacy? What do they hope their legacy will be? I think yours obviously will be in this institution, even though I know you would say I didn't do it alone. What is your legacy and what are the opportunities that you would see, you know, from your vantage point that you would love to see black and brown founders take on? And then finally, are there any other ventures that you are interested in that you might go dabble in one day or invest in that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so I really think of my, my legacy as my children. And when I set off in my career, my objective was to, and still is to uh, enable my kids to leapfrog a generation in terms of catching up with kind of the majority sector. So that remains my aim and, and for them to make it a little bit easier for them to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. You know, I, I do think the, the museum will certainly be a part of that. I did not do it alone by any stretch. I feel very fortunate to have been a big part of of making it happen. And and so I I hope that it will be something that'll last in Nashville and and represent our country for, for a long, long period of time. You know, in terms of 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 other things, I mean, yes, I mean, there are other things that I'm interested in and other things that I'm thinking about, you know, both for the museum in terms of its continued growth and evolution. As I mentioned, I really view the museum not as a nonprofit, but as a tax exempt business that's here to help people and do some good. And so as such, you know, my job as CEO is to think about 
not only the maintenance of the business, but the growth of the business. So, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. So I need to be thinking about how we grow. And so I'm, I'm excited about some of the things that, I, that we're thinking about and discussing there. And then there are other things that are outside of, outside of the museum that, you know, hopefully before long, I have a little bit more time and energy to, to put into. So, yes. Uh, so we'll see. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to just like state anything? I mean, because the podcast is all about black and brown leaders and entrepreneurship. So if there's anything we haven't hit on, I don't know if there's like the Barons list, anything like that. I feel well, like, you know, I always tell people, you know, we, we are always looking for more members to join the museum and more important than that, come see the museum. So mm. come visit the National Museum of African-American Music. Black music has a home. Beautifully put. Beautifully yeah. I would just like to thank you, Mr. Yeah. Hicks. My I don't pleasure. feel comfortable calling you Henry. You've done too many things. Nah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm just really, really grateful for this. And obviously everyone, you can subscribe to our podcast but if you get a chance, please go to our YouTube channel. We will have the recording of Henry's speaker series. In addition to this podcast, if you can't get enough, we'll have Henry's speaker series on the YouTube page. It was a really phenomenal speaker series today. So thank you so much for being here with us. And again, do visit the museum. Sure enough, the reason to come to Nashville, if you didn't have one before, we really hope that you come and, and we'll see it with us. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Twin Day Rethinking Entrepreneurship, a podcast that features conversations with incredible Black and Latinx business experts, investors, and other successful founders located throughout Tennessee and other parts of the United States. We want this show to support you and reflect the realities that entrepreneurs face every day. So your feedback is much appreciated. If you have any questions about this episode or ideas for future topics, please email me at brin.plummer@ec.co. For a recap and transcript of this episode, and to learn more about the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, including the Twin Day program, go to twindaytn.co slash podcast. That's T-W-E-N-D-E-T-N dot C-O slash podcast. If you learned something from today's episode, please follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you again to the David and Rebecca Clements family for the generous support that makes this podcast possible. Until next time.